conversation series. Today we're hosting eminent sociologist Nancy Ammerman from the Boston University, and we're talking about her new book, Stunning Lived Religion, Contexts and Practices. Professor Ammerman asks us to think about religion not just in churches, mosques, and synagogues, but also on mountaintops, in deep relationships, and in taken-for-granted settings. She asks us to look around as we walk down the street. Some are usually hidden in plain sight, there will be always traces of religion, she asserts. Perhaps it's the person who walks past a Christian tattoo or a Muslim hijab. Perhaps it's the poster announcing a charity auction at the local synagogue. Or perhaps you open your Instagram feed to see what inspiring images meditations have been posted by spiritual guides to help start the day, she observes. Amarman examines religious practices whenever they happen, wherever they happen, both within religious spaces and in everyday life. And in doing that, she gives us a theoretical framework for the sociology of lived religion. All right, now we uh, start our meeting today, and I'm thrilled and honored to introduce Professor Nancy Ammerman. Those of us in sociology know her very well. Nancy Ammerman is a professor emeritus of sociology of religion, having served as chair of department and associate dean for social sciences. Her most recent research published in her edited 2006 book, Everyday Religion, Observing Modern religions, Religious Lives, published by Oxford University Press, and her 2013 books, Sacred Stories, Spiritual Tribes, Finding Religion in Everyday Life, again by Oxford University Press, explore the ways religion and spirituality are part of everyday world of work, home, health, and public life. Following on that research, she has articulated an invitation to rethink religion based on sociological theories of practice and a body of research on lived religion. This was published by American Journal of Sociology last year. Pulling all this together in her book, Studying Lived Religion Contexts and Practices, which will be out from NYU Press in October this year, and we're thrilled and honored to have that book's parts published, uh, presented today. And so Professor Ammerman's previous research focused on conservative religious movements and on American religious organizations and their networks of social provision Along, uh, along with uh, Grace Davies, she was coordinator-led and lead author for Religions and Social Progress, Critical Assessments and Creative Partnerships in the report of the International Panel for Social Progress, again by Cambridge University Press 2018. So we are very, very happy to have you uh, here today. Thanks for being with us and floor is yours. It is really a delight to be able to be with you today and to talk with you, this rather diverse audience of people who are interested in religion and interested in how religion appears in people's everyday lives in various contexts around the world. I think this should be a very interesting conversation. My own interest in uh, thinking about religion in this way uh, really started a couple of decades ago as I was coming off of the research that I had done on conservative religious movements and on uh, congregations and other American religious organizations. And it, it both because I was kind of ready to do something different uh, and because I was looking around at my field uh, in the sociology of religion and working in a school of theology, also talking with lots of people in practical theology and systematic theology, and just really uh, dissatisfied with the way how people were thinking about the role of religion in, uh, in the social world. There, there seemed to be you know, sociologists had put out this story for uh, for many decades that really starting in the earliest days of sociology as a field, 
that there was going to be this grand universal kind of transition in societies worldwide from traditional societies where, of course, religion was very important uh, to modern societies where all the things that really mattered would be governed by a kind of neutral, rational, uh, universal, uh, secular rationality. That just didn't seem to be uh, the case for an awful lot of places in the world. And it also seemed to be increasingly a matter of imposing one way of thinking about the way the world works that makes sense perhaps in Europe and to a certain extent uh, in the United States, uh, imposing that way of thinking on the rest of the world. So that was one part of my sort of dissatisfaction with things. Another part of the dissatisfaction was that the, the kind of counter argument that was emerging in the United States was so-called rational choice theory, uh, which was this notion that uh, the, more, uh, the more options people have to choose whatever kind of religion they wanna choose, uh, the more religion will thrive. And it really conceptualized religion as this kind of bargain people were making that everybody was uh, out to get the most rewards. And you know, the best reward of all, of course, was salvation, uh, eternal life. And so whatever religion offered the best bargain for getting your eternal life, that's where you would go. And as long as you were able to shop on an open market, then religion would thrive. Well, that just didn't seem to explain much of anything to me either. Um, so, you know, I, I was just really grappling with this sense that we don't have good ways to think about what religion is, how it works in, uh, in the world that we find ourselves in. And I think one of the reasons that was really becoming critical was that we were increasingly international in our conversations and increasingly uh, hearing people from a variety of contexts and uh, hearing ways of thinking about both religion and the social world itself as in, in very different terms. And my, uh, my initial sort of turn to thinking in a different way was to think about lived religion uh, as a way to broaden a definition of what religion is, to expand the boundaries of where we look uh, for religious life. Uh, and I think uh, that concept was a really important beginning point. Uh, it really comes uh, originally out of conversations among historians and some sociologists and, and some theologians uh, to turn from a very idea-centered notion of, of religion uh, to a more uh, experiential notion of religion. But what began to happen, I think, in the years after that uh, term began to emerge and people began to think about well, what if, we, what if we thought about religion this way as something that it's what people do, not necessarily what they believe or where they belong or which box they check on a census form or a survey. If we think about religion in that way, well, uh, I think one of the things that began to happen was that it became kind of synonymous with non-institutional kind of seeker religion, if you will, um, that you know, people began to say, oh yeah, that's right. That's, that's the spiritual but not religious people. That's the people who are putting together their own religious uh, package, however they want to uh, outside of institutional boundaries. And mostly people were thinking about, uh, again, about the global North, uh, about the North Atlantic world and the world where institutions seem to be less, uh, less strong, less critical, and it was leaving space for people to do this kind of bricolage. Well, 
I mean, that's helpful. That, that gives us a way to think about a broader range of things being encompassed by religion, but it doesn't necessarily help us a whole lot in thinking more broadly about where religion happens anywhere other than the North Atlantic world. Uh, and uh, the other thing that was really unsatisfying to me about the way the concept of lived religion was, was being used and uh, being, uh, I would say, misused uh, is that it just really didn't have a kind of theoretical foundation. Uh, in fact, but several years ago, some, a couple of my students and I surveyed a bunch of, of journals uh, to see how the term was being used uh, in those journals. And uh, I actually reported on this at the Nordic uh, Sociology of Religion meetings a few years ago. Um, and an awful lot of those articles were simply saying, I'm doing lived religion and didn't bother to define it, didn't talk about you know, what their theoretical foundations were, didn't necessarily you know, use a common methodology. It was just sort of like, you know, I'm not paying attention to what the church says. Oh, so therefore I'm doing lived religion. So I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And uh, for me, the kind of breakthrough was uh, beginning to think about the, uh, the theory of social practices, the, a particular way of understanding social life that focuses on what people do uh, and the way what we do is lodged in social interaction and social structures. Uh, I recently have learned the term conviviality. Uh, as a term that, um, that focuses on interaction and process uh, rather than necessarily structures. I think that it's kind of similar to what I mean when I talk about um, social practices. Social practices are basically the sort of recognized patterns of our social life that allow us to navigate, that allow us to get uh, to for one person to recognize, oh, you know, you're engaging in an introduction on a Zoom meeting. I know what that sounds like. I know what to do. Uh, and for us to go back and forth. Uh, and when we when we engage in a practice, on the one hand, we're engaging in something that has a structure that's already there uh, that that shapes what we do, but there's also, because it is emergent, we're doing things, it allows for improvisation. So there's always both what sociologists call structure and agency. There's both kind of constraint and the ability to, uh, to improvise, to in fact, do that bricolage, uh, if you will. So I'm beginning to think about how can we think about structuring or can we think about the study of religion as a social practice, uh, as a cluster of practical action that, uh, that is both structured and improvised. Then of course, you know, I'm working with social theory, working with you know, people who are talking about all kinds of social action, uh, political action and economic action and so forth. I want to think about religious action. How am I going to recognize that something is a religious social practice and not just any old social practice? Well, that's a doozy. <laughs> uh, anybody who has tried to think about, you know, how we define religion, uh, you know, you've come up against a really difficult problem. I have decided really to, uh, to go with uh, the kind of insight that uh, Alfred Schutz um, put forward more than half a century ago about uh, multiple realities and the notion that human beings are able 
to exist in a situation where we recognize both what he calls everyday reality or ordinary reality, uh, the kind of tangible uh, thing that you and I both you know, recognize is real, it's there. Um, and at the same time, to recognize that there are, uh, that we're experiencing or we're perceiving things that come from beyond that everyday reality. And we dream, we daydream, uh, we imagine uh, all sorts of uh, ways in which we think about that uh, beyond the ordinary reality. So I've simply posited that a religious social practice is a social practice that contains that non-ordinary or spiritual dimension to it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't also have all of the other multiple dimensions that every social practice has. And here I think in some ways this is the most important thing about the kind of work I'm trying to do right now, and that is bringing this multidimensionality into our understanding of religious practice. And I think we have a great deal uh, of debt to voices from beyond the North Atlantic world for making us recognize that not only religious social practices, but all social practices are not just about us having some sort of attitude or value or idea in our heads that somehow dictates how we act in the world. Uh, that our, uh, our action in the world is embodied and our knowledge of the world comes from our bodies, that our action in the world is material, it, we're surrounded by stuff that becomes a part of how we understand uh, what's going on, uh, that our action in the world has a kind of narrative quality to it. Uh, it has a beginning, middle, and end that's telling a story about who we are and, and that it has a moral uh, quality to it, that what we do uh, assumes uh, a, uh, our understanding of what is good to do, what is good to, to uh, pursue, uh, that it has an aesthetic quality, that we, we seek out and attempt to frame our action in ways that are, that are pleasing, that are beautiful. Uh, so this multidimensionality is, I think, something that you know, people who are studying religion can really benefit by thinking about, you know, what's going on here, first of all. Let's, let's think about this as a social practice. Let's ask, what are people actually doing? And then let's look at what they're doing and look for both the ways that is structured by previous habits, by power, by gender dynamics, by all sorts of other ways in which the action is constrained. Uh, but let's also look for how they're improvising with that constraint and that structure. And let's look for the way in which their action is embodied and material and moral and narrative and all these other uh, dimensions. So that's kind of where I have ended up. And uh, the book that is coming out in December uh, is one where I have tried to benefit from the work that's being done in all sorts of corners of the earth. Uh, one of the really fun and important things that I did in the book was uh, in the index, I indexed for geography. Uh, and really tried to make sure that people who were interested in religion as it occurs in different parts of the world would be able to find the examples uh, that are in the book uh, from those different parts of, of the world. So, you know, there's everything from South Africa to China to uh, Chicago. Um, and uh, that's where I want to sort of turn it back over to the rest of you and say, you know, let's, let's talk about lived religion. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, um, 
I, I will start with, with, I have a lot of questions, but I will appreciate that, you know, audience will also have questions. So I'll start from the, the question, which, which um, you probably, you posed in your paper in American Journal of Sociology, but for our listeners, um, it would be great what your comments would be on what sociology got wrong on theoretical level with the study of lived religion, because you problematized that on, on a number of levels. And would you elaborate on what, what is wrong with sociological sociological study of lived religion, if you will? Well, uh, two things that I would point to, um, and they're intertwined. Uh, one is that it, uh, sociology tended to uh, look at lived religion as excuse me, uh, as uh, an individual uh, expression. Uh, that is, it was, it was sort of, prop, it was proposed as, this is what individuals do. And that is related to the other uh, problem, which is that then set it over against institutional kinds of religious expression. Uh, as if the people who uh, go to Shabbat services on Friday night aren't living their religion. Uh, as if, you know, people who are uh, engaged in more institutionalized religious practices uh, aren't really practicing uh, religion. They're simply going through the motions or, you know, that's not real religion or, I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which it, uh, lived religion research tended to dismiss uh, that more institutionalized uh, kind of religion. And then, as I suggested a minute ago, I think the, uh, what it also did was take the kind of Western uh, experience as uh, the norm. Uh, it took the, the notion of a kind of weakened or disappearing institutional structure uh, and the sort of remains of religion being found in the interstices with individuals. It, it took that as if that were the model of what lived religion is. Um, and the, it kind of continues on, again, one of your papers, you, you were talking about the methodologies and somehow what's the, what, what is the optimal way or what, what's the, what's the levels in which we can study lived religion? Would you comment on methodological dimensions of studying lived religion? Well, I think the typical way that we study lived religion is some combination of ethnography and interview. Uh, the so-called qualitative methods. Um, and uh, I think in many ways, those are the, the ideal ways to, to get at this. But one of the things I've tried to do in the book is to point to ways in which uh, people have used lots of other uh, methodologies that do in fact provide us some insight. Um, I tend to be very uh, critical of surveys, but a really well-constructed survey that perhaps starts with a more qualitative uh, exploration of, of, of given phenomenon and develops questions that emerge out of that qualitative exploration can then give us you know, a broader picture uh, of where those kinds of practices are, uh, are occurring. Um, there are people doing cognitive science uh, in ways that I think help us get at some of the uh, kind of experience of um, religion uh, that can be useful uh, in understanding uh, lived religion. Um, I think historians have certainly um, been very instrumental in uh, starting to look at you know, at diaries and at, you know, other kinds of documents that give us a window on what people were doing uh, in past times. Uh, and, you know, there's even uh, sort of these sort of big data, um, you know, kinds of uh, efforts that, you know, one can imagine learning some interesting things by, uh, you know, crunching through, millions of documents that have been indexed on Google or whatever. 
Um, so, you know, I think we can be rather imaginative, actually, about how we can see kind of traces of what people are doing religiously uh, in different contexts. Um, I will open now the floor to the audience. Um, please uh, use the uh, raise hand button or you can directly start to speak if you, if you want to. So questions from the audience? All right, before we have uh, people um, asking questions, then I'll, I'll, I'll continue abusing the role of the moderator. Um, a COVID crisis definitely had impact on, on both institutionalized forms as well as live religion the way, the way we know it. I'm wondering if you're, if you're dealing with this problem in your, in your book, what, what happened? What was the implication of COVID pandemic on live religion? Again, starting from, I don't know, Chile to Chicago, you name it. But what was the sort of the maybe unintended consequence, if you will? Yeah, I, I think we don't know uh, yet. Uh, so let me just suggest a, a few hints that I've seen from uh, some of the research that's starting to emerge. Uh, one of the more fascinating uh, examples that I've seen, it, well, one of the things, of course, that happened is that uh, lots of religious observance went online. Um, and that was the case for both um, congregations, collective um, experiences of worship that went online, and uh, what's been happening for a long time, which is that people have sought out and created uh, communities uh, online, uh, communities of practice, uh, whether it's you know, communities that get together for uh, online ritual observances or you know, reading spiritual books together or uh, having Bible studies or whatever. I mean, that kind of uh, online uh, community gathering has been going on for a long time. And, but it was certainly accelerated by, uh, by the COVID pandemic. But uh, existing uh, brick and mortar uh, communities really were challenged enormously. And what we do know uh, is that those that had more resources uh, were able uh, to adapt faster in most cases and had more ability to, uh, you know, to get online, uh, to collect money online and so forth. Uh, but the really creative stuff happened as people uh, sort of recognized that they were able to do some things or could do some things that they couldn't otherwise do. Um, gathering people from a, a greater distance, for instance, uh, essentially creating or expanding what might be thought of as diaspora communities, um, but also combining things that happen in the home with things that happen normally would have happened uh, in the brick and mortar location. Uh, I think one of the most creative things I've heard about is a, a particular rabbi uh, who took this as an opportunity to teach people in his congregation about various Jewish home practices that most of them really hadn't been doing because they kind of depended on, if they were members of a synagogue, they kind of depended on the synagogue to be their sort of religious place. Um, and uh, this rabbi said, well, no, you know, there are all sorts of things that that we Jews typically do uh, in the home. So let me give you a lesson uh, in how to do that. And really saw that kind of home-based practice uh, increase uh, among his congregants. Uh, so I think what it has done, among other things, is redefine place. Um, it redefined place for all of us. I mean, look at where we all are. Uh, at this moment, but it redefined place in terms of uh, practice uh, that there were uh, that we could do things when we weren't physically together, 
that we could be taught to do things uh, in new places, that we could gather communities in different ways. Okay, thank you very much. We have uh, Timothy, uh, please. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. I also had another question and well, it's, uh, it's slightly from a very different context. Uh, uh, I was introduced to your work um, when I was doing a PhD uh, dissertation through reading another sociologist, uh, Frank Lechner or Lechner. <laughs> and uh, he cited you extensively and that's how I got to read your um, some other books and papers. And uh, ironically, he was writing a lot about uh, rational choice approach, and um, and he was very critical towards the theory himself. He had this very strong historical understanding uh, of the religious process, um, and he brought up your name when he was uh, uh, saying that there is a way to kind of to do rational choice better. <laughs> so. Basically, what he wanted to say is that scholars of rational choice, they should understand what, whatever is happening in the context of social institutions, in the context of history, in the concept, context of structures. And he called it uh, environmentalistic approach. And that's how he cited you. He, he, I think he picked up it from, from you. And also in your very recent paper, an American... Um, American Journal of Sociology, I think you also, you know, you laid out this big idea how to study um, uh, religious religion and social practice. And you, again, you, you talked about this understanding within broad context of structures. And I guess my question, you know, this is a very rare opportunity. Finally, I, I have this opportunity to talk to you and to ask you questions because when, when I read it, it sounds so you know wise and interesting but to be very honest sometimes as a researcher it's very difficult for me to to understand how to realize this endeavor in practice what does it actually mean to understand rational choice in the in the context of history so so i guess my question is very broad but maybe you can talk more maybe you can elaborate on this idea like what do you what do you do as a researcher in your daily research when you want to understand social practice in the context of large social structures? Maybe you can give some examples or, or your own experience of, you know, dealing with these issues as a researcher and reflecting on what, what are we actually doing? Yeah, that notion of um, how do we understand yeah. the, the kind of the constraints within which people are making choices. So um, one of the things I try to do in the uh, in that uh, AJS paper and also in the in the book is to lay out some ways in which to think about what that cultural and legal and historical kind of context, uh, what kinds of questions we should be asking about that and how in different parts of the world, the, the answer is gonna be very different. Uh, and you know, one of the things that I think we pay very, not nearly enough attention to is the role of the state. Uh, and the fact that you know, rational choice theory uh, comes along in the context of the question of how regulated or unregulated the religious market is. Um, but by talking about it in market terms, I think we really miss the, the degree to which, uh, you know, there are places where there are all kinds of, no matter where you are in the world, there are kinds of religious practices that are not okay. You know, there are ways in which you know, in this country, we fight over things like uh, smoking peyote or uh, sacrificing chickens uh, or, you know, uh, whatever. You know, is it okay if it's part of a religious practice because we supposedly protect religious practice? Uh, is it okay for people to do things that would otherwise be illegal? 
Uh, but, you know, if you look around the world, there are things that people simply either don't want to do or can't do uh, because their culture and their legal system, you know, says to them that these religious practices aren't okay. Uh, and, but it's much more subtle that, you know, first point is we should simply pay attention to, to the legal situation uh, that we're uh, looking at in any given place. But there's also the sort of social class and gender and those um, sort of intra-societal constraints uh, that are present as well. And I think one of the ways we begin to get at that is by asking, what would people simply not dream of doing? Uh, and it's hard to ask that question because people haven't dreamed of doing it. Um, so, you know, how do we, uh, how do we frame questions or even ourselves as observers, how do we come into a situation and ask ourselves, what's not happening here? What, what are these people not doing? And what does that tell us about the constraints that they simply assume. Uh, and, you know, we can often observe those kinds of things around, around gender, for instance. We can observe, you know, who gets to preach a sermon and who doesn't, uh, or, you know, who can perform certain kinds of rituals and who can't. Um, but you can also observe more subtle things like uh, styles of music, um, you know, are, does the style of music here uh, reflect a, a particular social class and uh, perhaps ethnic uh, tradition uh, that, that, again, constrains choice uh, because people wouldn't choose to do um, classical organ music in a small country church. Uh, to use a U.S. kind of example. Um, they don't own an organ, <laughs> so there's an e economic constraint to that uh, choice. So, you know, I think it's a real challenge to researchers because it does ask us to think about what the possible constraints might be and to imagine those things that aren't there. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. This idea that we should pay attention to something which is not happening, could mm -hmm. have happened, but is not happening, is actually a very, uh, very insightful idea. So thanks for your reflection. Thank you, Timothy. Um, other questions? Um, then I will ask um, uh, the, the sort of the conceptual on, on a conceptual level i think there is at least i struggled always with with the positionality of the researcher in in a way of conceptualizing what vernacular religion or folk religion versus religion everyday religion banal religion is i mean there's so much dependent the way at least i understand it on the positionality and i'm wondering what kind of conceptual distinctions would you give to this everyday religion versus lived religion or a folk religion, vernacular religion, you name it. So what is the sort of conceptual lenses that you would advise us to, to, to think through? Well, concepts like vernacular or popular religion have largely emerged um, in ways that carry a kind of evaluative uh, dimension. Uh, often folk religion is seen as uh, a kind of lesser uh, religion. It's, you know, it's what happens in the streets rather than what happens in the cathedral. And it's what the poor people do rather than what the intellectuals or the elites do. There, you know, there's a, uh, there's an evaluation uh, that's present there. Um, lived religion, I think has not picked up quite so much 
that kind of uh, evaluative notion, except insofar as the people who want to say um, either see religion is still alive and well and enter into that kind of argument, or this is the real religion and that stuff that's going on in the institutions is just dead and dry and and oppressive and I don't know what else. Uh, so that there's a kind of positive evaluation to lived religion uh, as opposed to what's seen as um, not, uh, not authentic. Um, so uh, where, to, where to go from here? You know, I think you ask about positionality uh, first of all, and that's certainly that's an issue for researchers, no matter what kind what we're looking at or uh, what kinds of concepts we're working with. Uh, we're always uh, we're always positioned uh, relative to uh, the people we're working with or uh, observing, and. It, I think anthropology especially has been very helpful to us in helping us to be aware of that uh, positionality. Uh, there's a danger, I think, in um, becoming hyper-reflexive, if you will. Um, the kind of work that ends up uh, spending more time talking about how uh, what my position was uh, than actually talking about what it was that I was there to be a part of and to, uh, to convey. Uh, so there's a, there's a delicate uh, balance, I think, uh, in the work we do in being aware of who we are, what kinds of baggage we bring into any situation. I mean, every situation is going to be one where uh, we have assumptions about the people we're working with and they have assumptions about us. Um, I think one of the, the biggest problems that university-based researchers have uh, is that people have ideas about who university-based researchers are. And uh, there are lots of folks who really don't wanna talk to us uh, and who will simply you know, sort of disappear into the cracks and we never see them uh, because they're not part of the, of the world we're able to easily tap. Uh, so part of our you know, positionality is simply recognizing who we have access to and who we don't. Thank you. There is a question from the audience. Uh, can we speak about lived religion as an indivisible and essential part of any religion? Lived religion is often beyond institutional walls but still in the broad sphere of religion. Could it be a key concept of understanding religion? Um, I would not talk about it as a part of any religion. Uh, I would talk about it as a way of understanding any religion. Um, so I think it's, it's important one of the ways that lived religion is often talked about, I think especially by uh, theologians, uh, is that it's, it is how people live out their religion in their everyday lives, uh, as if religion is sort of the ideas and the stuff that happens in the religious institutions, and then you take that and you go out into the world with it. And that going out into the world with it is the lived religion. You're lots of preachers talking that way. Uh, and that's, I think, not how a sociologist is going to use the notion of lived religion. Uh, we're going to use that notion really to talk about what happens in the religious communities, uh, as well as what happens on Monday morning and what happens at home uh, and what happens in the marketplace. Uh, you know, it is, it, it, lived religion becomes a kind of a, a portable concept uh, that, but that it's important to see it as happening 
both within established institutional religious communities uh, and in the broader uh, social world. Thank you. Um, and I, I, I don't want to spoil the uh, sort of the book is not out. We haven't read it. But are you dealing with Orthodox Christianity in a way? Are you are you are you looking at uh, sort of these ideas of I don't know how how Orthodox Christianity uh, sees the role of agency or the role of individuals and the role of priests and what kind of power relationships are and impacting on lived religion in a way uh, in your book? And then we have uh, another question from the audience. Let's take the question from the audience and I'll come back to that. Sure, Maria, please. Yes, thank you so much for sharing insight with us. Um, I would love to uh, refer back to the Tordnik's question about COVID and its implications to the, um, to the to religious practices. And um, you mentioned the digitalization of the practice. So, and um, my question would be in this respect, do you see it rather as a chance for religion to stay, like for its reactualization, or you would say it's um, rather a threat and it's basically undermining the core idea of uh, like, of religious practice and um, it's like contributes to it, desacralization. Okay. Um... So if we think about religion as something that people do, then the question becomes, uh, how are they doing different things as a result of uh, this pandemic? And I think what, if you want to talk about uh, contributing to, to decline, I think the, uh, the question becomes, um, you know, once I've gotten used to uh, Sunday morning in my fuzzy slippers with my coffee in hand, um, <laughs> am I going to make that, you know, 30 minute commute to my downtown church and sit on a hard pew and put on real clothes? Uh, <laughs> now, you know, it may be worth it to actually hear the organ in person and to get to hug my, you know, former, my uh, uh, community members. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the things that, one of the questions about lived religion that emerges out of this is what, which practices uh, be, have, which practices do we discover are dispensable? And which practices do we discover are really critical? Uh, and that we value all the more. So, you know, just like COVID has made people say, I ain't going back to that horrible job I had <laughs> before this, uh, or you know, I'm not spending another day with this spouse in the house, or <laughs> just all kinds of ways in which people are saying, you know, they, you know, done with the world as it was before COVID. Uh, I think we'll, there's a huge amount of research to be done on what kinds of, of religious practices uh, are enhanced, what kinds of religious practices decline. Um, you know, to the extent that our whole world has collapsed into a small space and yet at the same time, expanded into the internet, I think, you know, really, again, raises very interesting questions about how people uh, engage, whether, whether religious practice is a part of different parts of people's lives and where that religious practice happens. Thank you. We have uh, Katie. Um, thank you so much. I was um, somehow tempted to share um, some findings of new research. I was yes. writing <laughs> now about funeral rituals um, uh, in migration. And 
if you see if we see this as kind of very liminal period in a liminal, liminality of migration and then in the liminality of of the um pandemic then we have it it kind of emerges like 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 a I don't know, like a coffee machine that only things come through that are very, very important. And then we we saw that there are stable parts of the rituals that survive and unstable parts. And the most unstable parts maybe are the parts in which there is much bundling with material and spiritual. Mm -hmm. Because some many crises together they somehow make this material part very vulnerable. And we saw it in institutionalized religion too, like in with uh, sacred, with sacrament, that they could not, in Orthodox Church, it was a huge topic. It was divine, it is, uh, it is uh, blood, but it is still wine, and it, it is now dangerous, etc. And then we also saw uh, that um, the COVID, uh, emerged this very unstable part somehow people dropped them more much more easily and easier than the institutional religion deals with the more established rituals so that was i don't know if it is question that, that was just um, me say some uh, more about about uh, what things were stable and what things were unstable you mentioned the wine is sort of yeah. stable material wine. presence so is, yeah yeah what was very stable and they use a lot of technology is lament so they will take um viber or whatsapp etc and they will join the public lament from petersburg to to georgia to Tbilisi. so everybody knows that they are doing this lamenting and also that the dead person knows so this is a very stable part the publicity of this lamentation remained. So um, also what, what remained was uh, uh, the uh, importance of cemeteries, uh, that the, the dead bodies get the um, eggs and um, this kind of care. And in some instances, even drones were used because it was forbidden to, to go to cemeteries and people would use drones to drop off the the um, the eggs so their beloved ones who are there to would get their share so there are several parts that when i when i'm done with the paper i would love to share with you i i'd love to see it, it and i think one of the things that's really fascinating about that is that you're paying attention to the material and the embodied aspects of, mm -hmm. of what people are doing and paying attention to that lets you understand things that you might not un understand. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting, but also hard. It, it was maybe the hardest topic to choose now, but mm -hmm. somehow <laughs> it happened. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I'd love so. to hear about other people's research. Um anyone from the audience would like to um have a question, Johan? Oh well, um, asking about the research we're making. I'm I'm currently making research on Orthodox worship here in the Finnish Karelian Orthodox context, and I'm actually I'm quite impressed by your work, and I'm pondering a lot about this notion of lived religion, sort of in, in the context of Orthodox worship, and I'm pondering. Uh, intensively uh, about the, the the relationship of of sort of the, the the institutional and the lived in 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 orthodox worship because sometimes it seems to me that uh, the institutional is very much acted out and lived out and and the the and the, the people's uh, own lived experience is somehow very strongly institutionalized also mm -hmm. so how do you see this problematics you know, I think that's that's one of the constraints, if you will, uh, one of the structures. Uh, when an institution has uh, has established patterns and habits uh, for how one is supposed to practice, then 
when people come into that institution, uh, they expect to practice in certain ways. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't necessarily sometimes improvise and, um, you know, introduce new ways of, of understanding something uh, or uh, introduce uh, just little variations uh, that either they individually do or, uh, you know, maybe they gather a group of people who, uh, you know, all agree that, I don't know, women should be able to do something. <laughs> and so they all just do it. Uh, and gradually, perhaps, uh, the institution changes uh, as a result of the fact that people are, uh, are improvising in certain ways. Uh, you know, this, this interplay back and forth between the stuff that either has gotten codified uh, in books of doctrine or, you know, legal statutes or whatever, and the way people play with it, uh, I think is a really fascinating uh, thing to watch. And, you know, one of the things that we've always paid attention to in the study of religion is, is that role of authority and hierarchy and, and so forth, and the way that um, constraints or structures uh, people's understanding of who they are and how they practice and so forth. Um, but, you know, it's not all about constraint. Uh, it's also about, you know, the way that people, uh, the way people change. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think that's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, it, I think one of the ways that, that religious traditions change Mm. is in that migration process. Mm. Uh, and when, you know, when a group of people is existing in a different kind of context mm. where their religious practice isn't what everybody else is doing. Yeah, precisely. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, sometimes what that means is that they get even more orthodox. Uh, <laughs> You know, they, they think back to the way the tradition was when they left home 20 years ago. Uh, and it becomes sort of reified in that, uh, in that sort of throwback you know, way. Uh, or they adapt in really creative ways. Uh, I think one of the things we've seen in the U.S. is the way immigrants adapt to the expectations in the U.S. for how you organize religion. Um, you know, if you're a Muslim from Saudi Arabia, you don't uh, voluntarily organize a self-funded mosque and hire an imam. You know, you, uh, that's all done as part of the culture, part of the legal system, the state, et cetera. Come to the U.S., you want a mosque, you're going to have to build it yourself. Um, and you want to be part of the larger kind of religious community, you really need to have a, a leader or leaders who can kind of be like a clergy person who can join the local ministerial group and uh, be the person that the newspaper calls on when they need a comment from, you know, the, the local Muslim, uh, whatever. So, you know, people, the kind of structure of the way the U.S. expects religion to be organized has shaped the religious experience and the religious practices of the non-Protestant traditions. I mean, it all started with the way we imposed Protestant ways of organizing on the Catholics, uh, but everybody else has had the same kind of experience. And, you know, it's not always, sometimes it's legal, but mostly it's simply that's the way all kinds of systems are set up and people learn uh, to adapt to them. All right. Um, thanks uh, very much for this discussion. Um, uh, let me please join uh, join me in, in thanking Professor Ammerman for this talk. Um, a round of, of virtual applauses, I guess. This recording will be uh, available at our departmental um, podcast and widely 
we, we share it through our um, channels. Thanks very much, Professor Amman, for your time and audience, for your engagement. Thank you all. This has been a pleasure. Welcome.